Hi, friends. Let's have a soul talk. Today we're talking about the importance of our emotions in all of our relationships, including with God. When Jesus says, come to me, he's inviting us to bring our emotions to him. That's where apprenticeship to Jesus starts, because we live in our emotions, whether we feel them consciously or not. We're thankful to all of you who donate to the ministry of Soul Shepherding. You enable us to help pastors and missionaries who lack resources and to provide this podcast for free to thousands of people each week. Christy, this time yesterday, we were enjoying gelato ice cream in Newport Beach. We're sort of the ice cream snobs, and uh, (laughs) I'm not ashamed of it. Well, I'm glad you're not ashamed of it. I didn't think I was, except that I noticed every time you want to post a picture of us with gelato, I feel some shame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you, you feel like maybe we're not working hard enough. We're having too much fun. Oh, no. People. It was our Sabbath day. I was glad we weren't working. So then why do you feel shame? I feel shame that I'm eating ice cream. It's not, <laughs> all the sugar and I'm spending oh. money on it. <laughs> maybe I'm the one feeling ashamed that we're not yeah, working hard I enough. Yeah, I think you just identified that. I don't ever feel shame that we're not working hard enough because I think we're working too hard. <laughs> We have different shame triggers, and that's what this podcast is about. It's about shame. And maybe we need to go back and listen to our last podcast. I'm looking to the face of the Lord and having radiant (laughs) joy and being unashamed. Yeah. So when you have gelato ice cream, you need to look to Jesus. And when I am resting and not working, I need to look to Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's good. And today we're going to be talking about a pastor that you worked with and befriending shame. This is a, a story that you put together from your work with pastors for our Institute Week on Soul Care Ministry. And every time you share this at our Soul Care Ministry Week, it's it's very powerful. It's very helpful. So I'm excited that you're going to share this with our listeners today. But it's it's relatively lengthy, so let's get into it. We'll call this Pastor George, and he's a senior pastor who came to me for counseling had an MDiv and was leading his church for 30 years. And he said to me, I feel like I've lost my faith in Christ, or I never had it. I've been doubting God for so long, now I don't believe in him anymore. I just can't go on preaching from the Bible on salvation when I don't believe it myself. Why doesn't the message of trust and faith in the Lord that I preach to other people hit home for my own reassurance? I need some hope. I'm trapped in a huge black hole of emptiness. I don't want to be separated from God. I'm so afraid of going to hell. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. So George felt sad and empty all the time. And he couldn't relax or concentrate on his work. In fact, it was hard for him to just get out of bed and get through the day. Every step for him felt like slogging through a thick bog, especially preaching. It was a chore that he hated. His church actually was dying. It had declined from 125 members all the way down to 25. He felt like a total failure every time he walked in the church. Standing in the pulpit, he felt like he was sinking into that hellhole. Just being in his church office he felt empty and like a failure. Worse, he felt like his marriage was already dead. His wife was beaten down by his negativity, his doubts, and all all his complaining. It was the same with his 26-year-old son. 
George said to me. I can sense their extreme disappointment in me. They don't understand my faith crisis. George didn't have anyone who was a soul friend to him. Nobody knew how depressed he was, except his wife and his son, and the pastoral counselor who referred him to me, and his psychiatrist. He had been receiving psychiatric care for a couple years, and he was on antidepressants, but he said it wasn't helping him. He told me one day that he identified with Nicodemus before his new birth. And uh, wow, I mean, it's so sad to be a pastor of others and feeling like the, the life is not real in you that you're preaching about. I have talked with other pastors in this position. I asked him lots of questions about his faith history and his personal relationship with the Lord. And he had biblical doctrine, but I couldn't find any evidence of him really experiencing new birth and a living, authentic relationship with Christ. I assessed George as being depressed with obsessive-compulsive features because his whole personality was shot through with shame, guilt, and fear. And he was constantly analyzing over and over why he was such a basket case and why he couldn't believe in God, constantly condemning and judging himself. There's that shame. We're talking about befriending our shame. So here's a key point. Since depression usually includes anger turned inward, I started doing some archaeology, looking for his anger. Because when he was in my office and talked with me, he didn't present with any anger. He was a very gentle person. But as I talked with him, he confessed that he was so angry at God that sometimes he even growled and muttered with clenching teeth, F you, Jesus. And I winced internally as he said that. It felt really sad. But I contained my emotions and stayed on the path of understanding him. So I empathized with him. This is a deep rage in you, a rage at God and at Jesus. And um, I knew that God didn't need me to rescue him or protect his reputation, that uh, the Lord had compassion for George and George's anger at him. And so I wanted George to experience God's empathy through me. And knowing that the pastoral counselor had done deliverance ministry with George helped me to stay on the psychological path and uh, wanted to get at the roots of his anger at God. So I asked a bunch of questions, of course, um, and I learned that his dad was a pastor who had been very successful, leading a church of 2,000 people. But his dad had multiple affairs with women. George sneered as he said to me, my dad was a hypocrite. He talked down to my mom. She was always nice to him. She lived with this secret pain about his affairs, and there was always a sinking feeling in our home. I kept worrying about her and never understood what was going on. I didn't learn about the affairs until I was in my 20s. My dad favored my older brothers because they were tougher and better at baseball. He was distant from me. We never really connected. Worst of all, he didn't share Jesus with me. He gave me religion 
Actually, he gave me hellfire and brimstone. That was the tone of most of his sermons. Mm. When I was in junior high school, I asked him questions about having a relationship with God. But he didn't really listen to me. He just lectured me. It was the same when I was in college, and I told him I wanted to be a PE teacher, not a pastor. He wouldn't hear of it. My older brothers are pastors, and I should do the same. He was always so confident about what was right, George said to me. My dad acted like he was so sure of his faith, and everybody thought he was such a successful pastor. But he died a miserable, lonely man. Then George said uh, something that really got my attention. On his deathbed was the only time he was ever vulnerable with me. He admitted that he was afraid he didn't really know Jesus. That's what George was admitting to me. So in my office, I pulled out an empty chair and faced it towards George. This is a technique I sometimes use. And I asked George if he would tell his dad in the empty chair how angry he was about all these things. Then I coached George as we went down the list of all these offenses and helped George give vent to his anger and his contempt at his father. And of course, I gave him lots of empathy support. Later, we did forgiveness work. You might be wondering about that. But at this point, I knew that he wasn't yet able to do that from a genuine heart of mercy and compassion. He needed to feel the anger and uh, even the, the, the judgment, the hatred, and hear himself say it, experience it in his body, say it to a person, say it to the Lord. Well, later during another therapy session, George was cycling through more self-reproaches and self-hatred over his doubting God and being a lousy pastor, a lousy husband, a lousy father. This was his mantra that he would repeat over and over. I asked him how he'd been dealing with this. And he told me, that he'd been listening to podcast sermons of a famous pastor who was quite legalistic and judgmental. The sermons tended to be on the wrath of God and hell. And he wondered why he wasn't feeling reassurance of God's mercy. (laughs) Oh, man. Of course, I instructed him not to listen to any more of those sermons. I told him to find sermons on God's love, grace, and compassion. I knew that until he personally experienced the loving kindness of God through Christ, he had nothing to build on spiritually. These harsh sermons were fueling a brutal judge inside of George, and it condemned him. I could tell that the preaching he was listening to sounded like his dad and how his dad had talked to him and to his mom too, and this was why he was so depressed. So I had him do a psychodrama role play. And in this case, what that means is we put Preacher George on one side of the couch and Rebel George on the other. And I literally had him move back and forth from sitting on one side of the couch to the other, playing each part. It was really easy for him to verbalize for Preacher George. He was so identified with that ideal self. You should believe that Jesus died for your sins. You tell people that God loves them. Why don't you have faith? If you don't confess your sins and trust Christ, you'll go to hell. God is going to give up on you. He probably already has. George had a good-bad split. He thought that preacher George was good 
and Rebel George was bad. So he tried to live up to the standards of the preacher, and he repressed his feelings of anger and hurt. He made his personal weaknesses bad, and this is why he felt such shame and fear. Well, I surprised him. I told him that Preacher George was as bad as Rebel George, and that actually Rebel George wasn't so bad, especially if he could vent his anger to me rather than storing it in his body. His anger was seeping out in cynicalness and self-hatred. And sometimes he would react to people with his own angry judgments. He just couldn't keep it all repressed. It would pop up. So I prodded him to give Rebel George a voice, a place, really, to befriend his anger, and to fire back at Preacher George. So he did. I'm sick of your religious crap. You're a hypocrite, like my dad. Stop judging me. Well, in time, I started seeing a change in George. When I asked questions about how he was doing with his relationship with God or his wife and other things, he actually teared up. And as we got underneath his anger and shame, and he shared his hurt, he opened more and more to my compassion. He was learning to receive comfort and to not feel so bad about his emotions and his needs. His heart was starting to thaw, and he was realizing how much he needed God's love. Well, as you're listening, friends, I imagine you can sense a very precious moment here when the, the soul opens up like a flower that's just blossoming. See, that's what we get to when we get underneath the, the anger and all the, the stress and all the words and activity and make a space to befriend our emotions in a relationship. This is what George is learning to do. So then I worked with him on learning to differentiate between theological doctrines about God versus our personal experience of God. So I began fishing everywhere I could in his life to find his emotions and his personal engagement with anything that was good. This was really fun, I gotta tell you. I because I found lots of little treasures. These were some of the things he shared with me. His kindness and care toward a woman in his church who was dying. A 45-second experience with his wife when they were in the pool at a hotel, and she looked at him with twinkling eyes and spoke to him in a sweet voice, and he felt loved. Golfing with his brother and noticing the warm sunshine, the green grass, the spreading trees, and the blue skies. Enjoying his son lead worship at their church. I made a real big deal about these things as being God's gift to him. This is how much God loves you, I'd say. You're experiencing the presence of the living Christ. See, just affirming those touches from the Lord. And these were things that he'd been discounting. But when I took note of them, 
and affirmed them, it helped him to do so. Well, so as we're going along in the counseling, George still is thinking that he has no desire for God, only doubt. Uh, And this is then activating that temptation to judge himself and then spiral down into depression. Well, I helped him see that actually he did have desire for God, or at least he desired to have the desire. He longed to long for God. He wanted to desire God, but he was shut down by his depression. Pretty much the only ways that George knew to seek God were in Bible study and ministry to other people. He told me, it's hard to accept that I'm a minister and I've never learned to pray. Not in my Christian home growing up, not in my seminary. I've been a dried up person who doesn't know how to really pray from my heart and engage with Jesus. But through the experience of relating with me and praying with me and having his heart warmed up, things were changing. And that week he emailed me. Thanks for your prayers. As I'm seeking God, I find myself hoping for a revealing moment with Jesus. See, there's that longing, that desire beginning to stir up. So now that he was coming to life emotionally and spiritually, just a little by little here over a number of weeks, I had him start practicing some new disciplines that interested him. And this is an important point that, you know, I didn't, rush in to give him disciplines to do because he was already under all this religion and he wouldn't have done them in the right way. He needed to not do any disciplines for a while other than the discipline of being emotionally and spiritually honest with me and and, uh, learning to receive empathy and doing the the soul work that he was doing. So here are some of the disciplines that, that were interesting to him and he was ready for. Taking gratitude showers in which he thanked God for as many good things as he could think of. Singing old hymns during the day. Praying psalms of lament or anger to help him get in touch with his emotions and pray them out to God. And one of my favorites, fasting and praying Psalm 63 to cultivate his longing desire for God listening to the Gospels on audio, each one, even straight through, in order to know Jesus and God better. Way better than those podcast sermons on hellfire and brimstone. Praying the Jesus prayer during the day, as often as he could remember, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's a key one for every pastor or Bible study leader especially when we're struggling to experience God's love. Preaching on subjects that would minister to his own heart and soul, as well as that of his congregation. And then I taught him to catch himself whenever he started obsessing about his problems or judging his doubts, and instead to write down his emotions and then to tell me when we would meet next. And, and then we also talked about the blessing of enthralling his mind with the radiance of the Son of God, like Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 shows us. I encouraged him to do that. In a later session, 
I led him in an emotionally healing prayer experience. This was in response to an image that he kept getting as he was falling asleep at night. Sometimes these images are powerful, not only in dreams, but like daydreams. And so I was so thankful to be able to find this in his experience. And here's what the image was. He would see himself walking on a path to Jesus, but then he would run into a brick wall. Now, it's an upsetting image, but it was so helpful for understanding his experience. So we used this in, the, in this healing prayer time that I led. And so I directed him to recall the image and ask the Lord to reveal himself in George's imagination. I said that I would pray and listen to God at the same time. So after about five minutes of quiet prayer, visualizing, I asked George if he saw or felt anything. And this is what he saw. In my mind, I hear Jesus from the other side of the wall saying, come to me, George. It's like I can see through the wall and his arms are open to me, but I can't get through the wall. I can't get around it. I can't reach Jesus. You're feeling desire for Jesus, I said. This was a real breakthrough. Also, even though a wall separated George from Jesus, I could tell that he was sensing the Lord's loving presence with him. George couldn't tell, but I could sense that that was the case. So we continued praying quietly. Then the Holy Spirit showed me a picture of Jesus stepping around the wall, unseen by George, and standing right behind him. Jesus' arms were open as he whispered warmly in George's ear, fall back into my arms, George. Let me hold you. Before he left my office, I suggested that George continue to pray about this image and to keep redirecting his thoughts from his self-recriminations to the mercy of Christ. And I also said to him, George, stop trying so hard to believe in God. That's part of what's been depressing you. I said, look, Jesus is believing for you. He steps around that wall. He's right behind you. See, I was using that image the Lord gave me to empathize with George. Just let yourself fall back into Jesus' loving arms. That's so important that we need to know that even our faith isn't all up to us. Jesus helps us believe. He helps us to trust, to trust God. Well, a few weeks later, George wrote to me, and I just, I've read and reread this letter. So encouraging. He says, Bill, I have had a turning point in my life. December 6th will be a day that I'll remember for the rest of my life. I came to peace that I now know I have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm rejoicing in this. It is truly the best Christmas present that I could receive. I know I need to keep getting help with my depression, but I also know that I truly know the Lord. I really do. I still have a lot of work to do in my relationship with my wife and in the church, but I am celebrating the birth of Jesus in me. Praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Bill, for taking time to write that up and remember you know, how, how God used you and share that with us. 
Yeah, it's an incredible story of how uh, when the Holy Spirit uh, draws us into an emotionally honest, authentic relationship and we, we get underneath some of those presenting symptoms and uh, things that we're struggling with into the deeper emotions and that archaeology of the soul, so to speak, as I said, uh, there can begin to be some movement where previously we were stuck, you see. He needed some some thinking and some praying and some empathy from outside of his own self to get him out of all that self-judging and all that repressed anger and all that shame that was just um, d- depressing him and pulling him into isolation and so forth. Yeah, and he had a, a big split there between what you called his pastor self and his rebel self, his ideal self and his true self. And he needed he needed a safe place to be able to be honest with himself and with God and, and with another person who could be an ambassador of Christ to him. Yeah, really, a, a lot of what I'm doing there is befriending his emotions. That's right. You know, we befriended his anger, mm-hmm. and it seemed shocking and and uh, destructive in, in the ways that it was, mm-hmm. but it is something he's experiencing. It's part of him, and he, he needed to be loved there. Yeah. We need to listen to that anger and get underneath it. And so that was a, a lot of the work of helping him with all that shame, was working out that internalized anger that he had there. Yeah. And he needed he needed some empowerment because he had this wounded, fearful, insecure, uh, very much feeling a discouraged and ashamed little boy in him going back to his relationship with his dad. And so that was a big deal to sort of stand up to his dad there and speak the truth in love and that empty chair role play and to make the connection that, wow, he was just, you know, reconnecting with that toxic stuff that was coming from his dad in the angry preacher's. And that was, he was absorbing that, and that was depressing him. Yeah, he was carrying shame from that for a long time, all by himself, and at the same time rejecting himself for feeling that. Yeah, it was, it was a vicious cycle, and it was like he just kept re-traumatizing himself. He didn't, had no idea. Right. And so it just was leading to more and more depressive thinking and being paralyzed and, and so forth. So um, getting finding the words for those deeper feelings and the courage then to express that into a relationship, and then to feel God's presence in that, in the way that you're cared for and and guided. So that was so huge for George. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another thing that that we did is enthralling him with Jesus and with an experience of God's presence. And so that's what I was doing uh, in part when I was finding these little treasures in his life, these moments of blessing that he, was, he wasn't seeing, he wasn't appreciating. He needed to learn what we call the examine of consciousness that Ignatius teaches us, where you reflect on your day. That's essentially what I was doing with him. I didn't describe it that way, but by asking him questions and drawing out experiences and just going on a hunt for, well, where has he sensed God's presence? Where has he noticed beauty and, and felt love? And he wasn't feeling it deeply because he wasn't attending to it, but I attended to it. And that helped him then attend to it and then begin to absorb it and really receive the, the goodness of God that was active in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then to see him get to a place where he really could respond to God's love. It's beautiful. And so that kind of gratitude, that's a real key in getting free of shame. Because when we're, when we're in a, a discouragement and depression and we're judging ourselves, even hating ourselves, we're, we're anything but grateful, Right. We're, we're not uh, looking to the Lord and appreciating 
His kindness to us. Yeah, and yet just being grateful and making a gratitude list doesn't necessarily get us out of shame if we're denying and repressing a bunch of negative emotion. Yeah, you've got to keep the two together. And a lot of people miss that. You know, if we just kind of go down the path, you know, be positive and Mm -hmm. think good thoughts and uh, believe the things the Bible says. You know, the psalmist doesn't do it that way. The psalmist blends the two. We we get the, the raw vulnerable expressions of, of emotion and stress and pain and all this, but we also get the expressions of thanks and praise to God and, and faith in the Lord's goodness, even when I'm not feeling it. Mm-hmm. Jesus, how grateful I am to you for your unconditional love, your pursuing grace, the way that you come to us to befriend us and our emotions and enable us to be honest with ourselves and with you, to bring our true self in all of its needs, in all of its brokenness and pain, in all of its shame to you, to receive your love, your grace, to receive freedom, to learn to trust again and anew at deeper levels. Thank you that you, your love longs to go deeper and further into filling all of our soul and freeing all of us from sin and shame. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Soul Talks with Bill and Christy Galtier. We'd enjoy meeting you. It'd be great if you could come to our Soul Shepherding Institute or one of our other events. You could also have us come speak to your church or community. Soul Talks is a ministry of Soul Shepherding and it's provided by our donors. You can help us reach more people by sharing this podcast with your friends.